I think one thing that as a political activist, when you are in jail, that you have to overcome is that they want to numb your critical thinking. They wanted you to conform. They wanted you to give up on what you're pursuing. And I think that is the biggest challenge when you are an activist and you are being thrown to jail. Nathan Law was the youngest representative ever elected to the Legislative Council of Hong Kong and one of its last Democrats. In 2016, aged just 23, the former student activist won a seat as part of the party he had founded, Demosisto. He was disqualified 10 months later after refusing to swear allegiance to the People's Republic of China with appropriate solemnity. Very shortly after that, Law was sentenced to eight months in prison for his role in leading Hong Kong's massive pro-democracy protests of 2014. Though that sentence, if not the conviction, was eventually struck down by Hong Kong's Court of Final Appeal, a new security law imposed on Hong Kong by China in 2020 clearly had people who think like Law very much in mind. He was granted asylum in the UK in 2021. Law has distilled some of what he has learned along the way into a book called Freedom, How We Lose It and How We Fight Back. I'm Andrew Muller, and I spoke to Nathan Law on The Big Interview. Nathan Law, welcome to The Big Interview. Well, thank you so much for having me. You've been in London now, I think, nearly three years. You yeah, nearly three years. Granted asylum after leaving Hong Kong. This is possibly a strange question, but how safe do you ever manage to feel? It's difficult to say that I'm completely safe because we all understand how extensive China's reach could be. But I think the raising awareness of China's global authoritarian expansion and how they well operate outside of China... I think for now, especially the government is well aware of the fragility of Hong Kong exile activists. And for now, I am up for public events or give a speech in a protest and things like this. So I think that slight insecurity of mine is not going to stop me from continuing to advocate for what I believe and the rights of Hong Kong people. But genuinely, do you assume you're being watched or monitored in some respect? Yeah, I think at least definitely the Beijing authority is closely monitoring my online activity or possibly physically following me. But I also don't have incidents of me spotting like agents around me. If I do, that will be a big news and I think that will be a extremely bad publicity for Beijing. So I think for me, I'm, I'm being cautious, but they're also being quite cautious. It has been a very strange and very swift journey for you, really, mm. from being born in Shenzhen not really all that long ago to being somebody who apparently the might of the Chinese Communist Party is terribly fearful of. But I, I want to go back a bit to those origins. I think I'm right in, in researching that you, you moved to Hong Kong when you were about six. Yes. Um, at what stage did you start to get a sense that Hong Kong and China weren't quite the same places, that there was a different identity attached to each of them? Yeah, I grew up in a very humble background. I lived in public housing. My father was a construction worker. My mother was a cleaner. They didn't really talk much about politics or human rights to me. They were also from China, so I was growing up in an environment that didn't really sparked my ideas of seeing Hong Kong or China as two different places or mm. two different political identity. But 
I think throughout that time, we also recognized there are a lot of differences between Hong Kong and China, merely just living in Hong Kong. Like we use different currencies, we speak different language, we use different characters, and we are much more internationalized. But it was up until when I first joined the candlelight vigil of the Tiananmen Massacre mm-hmm. in 2010, 2011, when I was in my high school, I started to realize that there's a big difference in the way that we see our government and how the Chinese government is behaving. We believe in division of power. We believe that people should have the right to speak up. But those are not the things happening in China. And even for the people demanding it, in 1989, they brutally murdered thousands or even tens of thousands of people. For now, we still don't really know the truth, what was happened in the Tiananmen Square. So that really gave me a big sense of a need to speak out in Hong Kong. And it was almost a coming-of-age experience of me. I will come back to that question of the need to speak up. But just an additional question about Hong Kong's identity, which is for all the reasons you've outlined, its differences in, in history and governance and economy is different, I think, to China's. But do you think it will endure? Clearly what China wants is to turn Hong Kong into just another Chinese yeah. city. Do you think that can actually be done, though? Or will Hong Kong's essential Hong Kongness always somehow endure? Well, I definitely believe that the Hong Kong identity will endure because of how tenacious we are. Overseas, Hong Kong communities are blooming and we definitely have a separate history, separate understanding of the government than the Chinese identity. I'm not saying which one is better or worse. It's just Mm. different. And it is not right to kind of merge two different things together by force, by brutality, by erasing our uniqueness. And I think that is what Beijing has been actively doing in Hong Kong. And also in other parts of China, like Uyghurs in Tibet. You mentioned the obligation, the right, the feeling that you should speak up. And this is something I'm always interested in asking people who, much like yourself, find themselves in a position of being activists or running for office or or leading a movement. I think it's probably pretty much everybody at some point in their life has thought about a particular thing. This isn't right. Something should be done. But there are very few people who decide and I'm the person who should do it. You write in your book, and you've alluded to this in this interview, that where you grew up, as you put it, there wasn't much hope or feeling of agency. Have you ever understood, basically, from where you got the nerve to decide, I should do this, it should be me? Yeah, I I would say that I never got that nerve to really be 100% determined that I'm going to do it. There were lots of unexpected back to tones in my life that made me who I am today. I ran for student representative when I was in university, and that was exactly the year when the umbrella movement, the multi-civil disobedience movement of Hong Kong broke out. And that was the reason why I became a public figure. If I enrolled in school a year earlier or a year later, I would probably be just an ordinary nine-to-five workers. It was just because I was in that year becoming that student representative. And at the beginning, my thought was, yeah, it was a one-year term. And after the term, I would fix my grades. I would go to exchange and maybe learn a new language. But all the things that really changed my life, indeed, was taking place in that particular year. And when I was a student leader, I felt the obligation to shoulder this responsibility when people were like, they literally 
trust and believe in me. So that was the start of it. And when you look at my journey, becoming a legislator, being jailed, being an exile activist, many of them, I just follow my idea of what is right or wrong and make that decision. So my story is actually a reflection of the era. I don't think I am a particularly smart or ambitious or like a political animal that were born for these things. It but, was just the time. But you could have at any point just decided, I don't want to do this. You didn't have to run for the Legislative Council when you were 23, for example, but you did. Yeah, so definitely I, I had my choice, but it was also the idea that when you look at the society, and back then, not that many people were stepping up. My idea of getting in the Legislative Council of Hong Kong was to bring youth energy, to bring the idea of the umbrella movement, to bring the idea of resistance movement, civil disobedience. And there were many others who were doing that. So I just feel like the time needs someone to fill in that spot. And I was in that position because I have garnered some support and reputation through my participation as a protest leader in the umbrella movement. And I was very lucky, very fortunate to have that kind of ability. And I think I have to contribute because of that. Mm. But but when you were elected, was your feeling that this proves the point, the fact that I have been elected, that I'm 23 years old, that I'm a, a pro-democracy activist, that's the point I wanted to make? Or did you have hopes of getting elected and thinking, we can actually accomplish something here, we can change the trajectory, we can preserve some of what Hong Kong still is. Hong Kong has never been a democracy. And for our legislature, mm. there has always been like only around half of the seats are through public election. So um, for our democracy camp, even though we had always been getting more than half of the votes, we are always minority in the council. So under that background, we knew that is not an engine to push forward to real changes. But we also, on the other hand, can see it as a platform for us to continue to raise our voice, to continue to represent the civil society, to bargain with the governments on not only big issues like democracies, but on also other issues like gender's rights, on workers' rights, etc. So um, for me, that was a platform, but that is not what all of my work's about. Another important aspect was also protesting. I kept protesting. I, I was arrested when I was a legislator. I still think that the real changes are always going to be on the street corners rather than in the chamber. I mean, within the chamber, though, or within the Legislative Council, were you able to have any kind of constructive dialogue with your fellow representatives who, to well, to put it charitably, represented more establishment points of view? Did they take you seriously and what you were trying to stand for seriously? There were definitely some discussion that our opinions were valued. For example, how we can make a city design that were better for animals, that were better for disabled people. Those were the things that were not politically contentious. And by discussing that and making policies, you also demonstrated that you were not only someone who were able to chant slogans, but you can talk about policies and mm. politics. And that's really important. And that was also a kind of like learning curve of me because when you transform yourself from a protest leader to a legislator and you show that more than 50,000 people's vote, and that is a big responsibility and you just have to talk much more than what you covered as a protest leader. So that was a time when I found out that there were lots of things to learn, 
But I also believe that the way that we perform, we we convince the people that we we are a bridge of the civil society and the mass public and the government, and we can make concrete changes. Did you ever get any impression that people were trying to co-opt you, were trying to include you in the political establishment in Hong Kong, trying to convince you that the way you were going was not the way to do it, that there was a more cooperative, consensual path? You know how this works. Were you on the receiving end of any of that kind of charm offensive? Well, it's weird enough that I I was not approached by them. Uh, <laughs> So in my book, I also wrote the part of the story of mine when I was in high school. I was actually in a very pro-Beijing student groups mm. because by then I didn't know much about politics. I just joined some cheap tourist group to mainland China and that happened to be part of the kind of Beijing's organs to recruit young leaders of Hong Kong to join them. I was not picked by them <laughs> as well. So it's really weird. From a very young age, even though I was not political active, I radiated a sense of rebellion and nonconformity so that even though I was situated in the kind of like pro-Beijing groups, they didn't even bother to ask me whether I wanted to join them. So maybe that is my kind of like natural characteristic. Well, and this is the characteristic which I guess you know, sees you end up in the dock in 2017. Mm. And, and you do write about this in the book, but... Again, not wishing to harp on you know, your extraordinary youth when you're going through these things, but it must be, I would think, fairly terrifying at any time of life to stand in a courtroom and be told that you are going to prison. Are you able to articulate what that felt like in that moment? Well, at that moment, of course, I was nervous. But on the other hand, I understood that it was my duty to do it because civil disobedience includes the last step, which is taking the legal responsibility of what you've done. So that part, I have certain preparation for that. But at the end of the day, I don't think anyone could have full preparation for jail because in jail is another world. It's something that you were unable to know and you didn't really know what would happen on you because you were in an isolated environment and you were unable to reach for help. So that was really a, a burden. But when I look back, I found myself very fortunate already because I was in jail for a few months. But for now, if you look at those people who are being jailed, we're talking about years or even a decade. When it comes to the so-called masterminds portrayed by Beijing, so those are definitely suffering much more than I a few years back. You do write in the book, or you describe your imprisonment, to quote, as not onerous. And I think you were bailed after a couple of months. Yes, yeah. But during that couple of months, how did you spend your time? What did you do all day? So prison life has always been very routine. That you have a fixed schedule, that you are not able to move freely. You're always situated in one room or another. The day was very dull. And I remember that the biggest perception of me is that they don't want to treat you as a human. They want to treat you as a number. I'm not saying that I'm being tortured in an extremely dehumanized environment. They just call you by your number and they see you as a good. For example, in jail, you can only speak to the officers in three ways. It's a yes, sir, thank you, sir, and so sorry, sir. You can never say no. Whenever they talk to you, no matter how wrong they are, you just have to swallow it. I think one thing that as a political activist, when you are in jail, that you have to overcome is that 
they want to numb your critical thinking. They wanted you to conform. They wanted you to give up on what you're pursuing. And I think that is the biggest challenge when you are an activist and you are being thrown to jail. During that period between you being released from prison and leaving Hong Kong, what was the evolution of your thinking about whether you could stay or whether you had to go? I mean, did you see a future for yourself in Hong Kong after leaving prison? I had always been thinking myself being buried in Hong Kong. I never had any thought of leaving, even when the 2019 protests broke out, massive ones. Millions of people marching down the street. A few months after it broke out, I went to Yale for my master program and I did a lot of international advocacy work. I testified in Congress. I met with Congress leaders and government officials to talk about that and how we can support Hong Kong. And after the course, I went back to Hong Kong, even though we already knew that the politics is going to be worse, that I helped my fellows to join the primary election to try to run in the next election. It was when Beijing, they want to circumvent all the Hong Kong local legislations and consultation process and impose that very draconian national security mm. law. Then I started to think it's really difficult to continue to efficacy work in Hong Kong and we should have someone on the international stage to continue to speak up. So that was really the time of me thinking about leaving. Since you've left, what kind of advocacy, what kind of networking are you able to do? Are, are there a lot of people in your position? It's been almost three years since I left and also since the national security law is implemented. For now, it's, it's really difficult to speak up. In Hong Kong, it's really difficult to say anything that criticizes the Hong Kong government or Chinese government because they were simply saying that you breached the national security law and throw you to jail. For people outside of Hong Kong, many of them, they still have to navigate themselves for their lives in this strange country. They still have to like kind of set up their community. For me, that also applies to me when I left Hong Kong in the middle of the COVID pandemic mm. and there were lots of things in lockdown, etc. But for the past few years, I, I managed to also participate in a lot of hearings, met with a lot of politicians to talk about how we can best support Hong Kong. I have my own organization now, an NGO, non-profit one, that supports the preservation of Hong Kong's culture and Hong Kong's identity. For now, in the UK, there have already been more than 150,000 mm. Hong Kong peoples that have moved from Hong Kong since two years ago. And this growing community made us much more visible and we can bring out our idea of how China's policy should be more assertive to the local politics. I think those are really positive things to our advocacy work. I mean, that national security law you mentioned, I think for a lot of people, was the end of any optimism or naivety, perhaps, about China and Hong Kong. There had always been this idea since the handover in 1997, which I'm sure you're aware of, that China would never strangle Hong Kong because Hong Kong was too economically important to China. And it turns out that that is no longer the case. That being the case... How optimistic is it possible for you to be about Hong Kong? If you think another 20, 30 years from now, what's the best case scenario? I think it's really difficult to feel optimistic about Hong Kong's future, at least for short term. China's 
understanding about Hong Kong had completely changed for the past few years. In before, when China was still under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping or some other former Chinese leaders, they had an idea of hide and bite, which they were not going to act aggressively on the international stage. They were definitely trying to convince the world that they're moving towards liberalism and democracy. So there had been naivety about China's trajectory that many of global leaders in like a decade ago, 20 years ago, that they would think China would gradually approach democracy with the growth of economy. But indeed, uh, things have changed. For now, under Xi Jinping, it's obvious that he is blatantly saying that, no, we're not going to be more liberalized. We are not going to be more democratized. We are very comfortable with our dictatorship. We are going to export this model to the world. And that drastic change of how China perceives themselves changed the face of Hong Kong. When the Chinese leaders want to convince the world that, yeah, we're learning Hong Kong, they had the incentive of preserving Hong Kong's freedom, at least superficially. But for now, as they are saying that, no, we no longer need that window dressing of us. They really don't have any hesitation in demolishing Hong Kong's long-standing tradition of rule of law, liberties, and division of power. So that was what happened in the past few years. I mean, do you think that was always inevitable, though? Were there things that could have been done differently, perhaps in the lead-up, perhaps during the negotiations before the handover in 1997? I can't begin to imagine what other ways there would be to approach China from an opposition viewpoint if you're trying to protest on the streets of Hong Kong. But if you think back over this period in which you've been directly involved, was there any way at all that what has happened did not have to happen? Well, definitely, if we look back to how the world sees China for the past 20 years, definitely there were a lot of misjudgment, there were a lot of wishful thinking. And I mean, like when I was in the Umbrella Movement in 2014, that was the golden era of the UK and China, and also Obama administrations were very friendly. We didn't get any international support from these governments and political scene. And that was just an example of showing when you had a wrong judgment about the regime, they ride on it and they became much more authoritarian to a point that it is really difficult to tackle them when you realize that the world is really friendly to dictators. So I think when it comes to negotiation or like for the past 20 years, incorporating China into our global system without really having any mechanism to hold them accountable, definitely if we were much more aware of the nature of the Chinese Communist Party, we could have done much differently. Do you see parallels in how the West is perhaps indulging China or is fearful of China and how this time a year and a bit ago the West was indulging and was fearful of Russia? Because I I think it's now commonly accepted that the Western world had been telling itself a pleasing story about Russia, that if we engage with them in economic cooperation, it'll all basically be fine. And then they discovered that an authoritarian state does operate on weird atavistic impulses. Do you have the same concern about China, that it's not just interested in prospering? The trade to change ideology is completely bankrupt. If you look at China, they're much more willing to show muscle on the international stage when they are becoming much more economically powerful. I think 
the lessons that we learned from the Russian invasion to Ukraine is that we definitely have to reduce our reliance on China in terms of trade. And that same parallel in Russia is definitely energy. At the very beginning, when the war broke out, the West, especially European countries, their hands were tied because they were so reliant on Russian energy and they didn't know how to react and they were in disarray. For now, we should definitely devise plans on how we should react to when China is going to invade Taiwan because that was what we were lacking when the Ukraine war broke out. There were no plans. There were no deterrence. And I think those are the things that we need now. We're getting towards the end of our time, and I want to ask for you personally, what do you do in your life now to maintain some sense of connection to a place that you come from and a place you clearly care very deeply about and a place uh, in whose cause you have sacrificed a great deal? If you kind of feel like going back there anytime soon is not an option, what do you do to stay in touch with Hong Kong? Well, after I left Hong Kong, I became more a fan of their popular culture, of their online discussion. I watched TV, series, movies, listening to Canton Pop. I also have my own cultural organizations in the UK that we just had our cultural festival all around the country. We had more than 40 events and collaborated with more than 20 Hong Kong organizations throughout the whole UK. Each of us, we have our role to play to kind of preserve our unique idea of what is Hong Kong and also our identity. I think that preservation is our largest weapon. As long as we stick together as a community, as long as we remember the tragedies that we had when the suppressive regime was going after our freedom-loving people, then there's always a chance for us to come back when things go worse for China, when they face a legitimacy crisis when the world is at last really awakened and to start to amass enough resources to fight against dictatorship. But while you are away from Hong Kong, what do you find yourself missing most about it? I'm missing most my family, my friends, food, but also just like standing on a street corner when there were bustling bus noise or like people chatting with Cantonese. They were really mundane and nothing spectacular, but you just enjoy it because you just love the place so much. Nathan Law, thanks for joining us. That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by Emma Searle and edited by Emily Sands. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>